Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my creatures of the night. Those that prefer the shadows and dark tendrils that caress the souls of the mystical and morose. Yes, welcome to your dark embrace of Bram Stoker's Dracula. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring how Dracula's travel from Transylvania to Whitby, England took place, and where his reign of terror all began. We get to hear the log of the sailors that traveled with him, and how they began to drop like flies, the fear they had in simply being aboard the ship, and the dark, mystical magics that Dracula brought with him upon his arrival. Oh yes, devilishly creepy. So buckle up, my brine-loving barnacles. And stray not too far lest ye be lily-livered, and crank the knob on ye old speaker to listen to more of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mina Murray's Journal 26th July I am anxious, and it soothes me to express myself here. It is like whispering to oneself and listening at the same time. And there is also something about the shorthand symbols that make it different from writing. I am unhappy about Lucy and about Jonathan. I had not heard from Jonathan for some time and was very concerned. But yesterday, dear Mr. Hawkins, who was always so kind, sent me a letter from him. I had written asking if he had heard and he said the enclosed had just been received. It is only a line dated from Castle Dracula, and says that he is just starting for home. That is not like Jonathan. I do not understand it, and it makes me uneasy. Then to Lucy, although she is so well, has lately taken to her old habit of walking in her sleep. Her mother has spoken to me about it, and we decided that I am to lock the door of our room every night. Mrs. Westenra has got an idea that sleepwalkers always go out on roofs of houses and along the edges of cliffs, and then get suddenly wakened and fall over with a despairing cry that echoes all over the place. Poor dear. She is naturally anxious about Lucy, and she tells me that her husband, Lucy's father, had the same habit that he would get up in the night and dress himself and go out, if he were not stopped. Lucy is to be married in the autumn, and she is already planning out her dresses and how her house is to be arranged. I sympathize with her, for I do the same. Only Jonathan and I will start in life in a very simple way, and shall have to try to make both ends meet. Mr. Homewood, Arthur Homewood, only son of Lord Godalming, is coming up here very shortly, and soon as he can leave town, for his father is not very well, and I think dear Lucy is counting the moments till he comes. She wants to take him up to the seat on the churchyard cliff and show him the beauty of Whitby. I dare say it is the waiting which disturbs her. She will be all right when he arrives. 27th July no news from Jonathan. I am getting quite uneasy about him, though why should I? I do not know. 
But I do wish that he would write. If it were only a single line. Lucy walks more than ever, and each night I am awakened by her moving about the room. Fortunately, the weather is so hot that she cannot get cold. But still the anxiety and the perpetually being wakened is beginning to tell on me. And I am getting nervous and wakeful myself. Thank God, Lucy's health keeps up. Mr. Homewood has been suddenly called to ring to see his father, who has been taken seriously ill. Lucy frets at the postponement of seeing him, but it does not touch her looks. She is a trifle stouter, and her cheeks are a lovely rose pink. She has lost that anemic look which she had. I pray it will all last. 3rd of August Another week gone, and no news from Jonathan, not even to Mr. Hawkins, for whom I have heard. Oh, I do hope he is not ill. He surely would have written. I look at the last letter of his, but somehow it does not satisfy me. It does not read like him, and yet it is his writing. There is no mistake of that. Lucy has not walked much in her sleep the last week, but there is an odd concentration about her which I do not understand. Even in her sleep, she seems to be watching me. She tries the door, and finding it locked, goes about the room searching for the key. 6th August. Another three days and no news. This suspense is getting dreadful. If I only knew where to write to, or where to go to, I should feel easier. But no one has heard a word of Jonathan since that last letter. I must only pray to God for patience. Lucy is more excitable than ever, but is otherwise well. Last night was very threatening, and the fishermen say that we are in for a storm. I must try to watch it and learn the weather signs. Today is a grey day, and the sun as I write is hidden in the thick clouds, high over Kittleness. Everything is grey except the green grass, which seems like emerald amongst it, grey, earthy rock, grey clouds tinged with the sunburst at the far edge, hang over the grey sea, into which the sand points stretch like grey fingers. The sea is tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, muffled in the sea mists, drifting inland. The horizon is lost in a grey mist, all in vastness, the clouds are piled up like giant rocks, and there is a brawl over the sea that sounds like some presage of doom. Dark figures are on the beach here and there, sometimes half shrouded in the mist, and seem men like trees walking. The fishing boats are racing for home, and rise and dip in the groundswell as they sweep into the harbour, bending to the scuppers. Here comes old Mr. Swans. He is making straight for me, and I can see, by the way he lifts his hat, that he wants to talk. I have been quite touched by the change in the poor old man. When he sat down beside me, he said in a very gentle way, I want to say something to you, miss. I'm afraid, my dearie, that I must have shocked you by all the wicked things I've been saying about the dead and such like for weeks past, but I didn't mean them, and I want you to remember that when I'm gone. We old folks that be daffled and 
with one foot above the crook hole. Don't altogether like to think of it, and we don't want to feel scarred of it, and that's why I've took to making light of it, so that I'd cheer up my own heart a bit. But Lord love you, miss. I ain't afraid of dying, not a bit. Only I don't want to die if I can help it. My time must be nigh at hand now, for I be old, and a hundred years is too much for any man to expect. And I am so nigh it that the old man is already wetting his scythe. You see, I can't get out of the habit of coughing about it all at once. The chaffs will wag as they be used to. Some day soon the angel of death will sound his trumpet for me. But don't you duel in a great, my dearie. For he saw that I was crying. If he should come this very night, I'd not refuse to answer his call. For life be, after all, only a-waiting for something else than we're doing. And death be all that we can rightly depend on. But I'm content, for it's a-coming to me, my dearie. And coming quick. And might be coming while we be looking and a-wondering. Maybe it's in that wind out over the sea that's bringing with it loss and wreck and sore distress and sad hearts. Look, look! He cried suddenly. There's something in that wind and in the host beyond that sounds and looks and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. The Lord makes me answer cheerful when my call comes. He held up his arms devoutly and raised his hat. His mouth moved as though he were praying. After a few minutes' silence, he got up, shook his hands with me and blessed me, and said goodbye, and toppled off. It all touched me and upset me very much. I was glad when the Coast Guard came along with his spyglass under his arm. He stopped to talk to me, as he always does, but all the time kept looking at the strange ship. I can't make her out, he said. She's a Russian by the look of her, but she's knocking about in the queerest way. She doesn't know her mind a bit. She seems to see the storm coming, but can't decide whether to run up north in the open or to put it in here. Look, there again. She is steered mighty strangely, for she doesn't mind the hand on the wheel. Changes about with every puff of wind. We'll hear more of her before this time tomorrow, as for certain. Chapter 7 Cutting Room, The Daily Graph, 8th August, posted in Mina Murray's journal, from a correspondent. One greatest and suddenest storm on record has just been experienced here, with results both strange and unique. The weather had been somewhat sultry, but not to any degree uncommon in the month of August. Saturday evening was as fine as was ever known, and the great body of holidaymakers laid out yesterday for visits by Mulgrave Woods, Robin Hood's Bay, Rigmill, Runswick, Staiths, and the various trips in the neighbourhood of Whitby. The steamers Emma and Scarborough made trips up and down the coast, and there was an unusual amount of tripping both to and from Whitby. The day was unusually fine till the afternoon, when some of the gossips who frequent the East Cliff churchyard and from that commanding eminence, 
watched the wide sweep of sea visible to the north and east, called attention to a sudden show of mares, tails, high in the sky to the northwest. The wind was then blowing from the southwest in the mild degree, which in barometrical language is ranked number two, a light breeze. The coast guard on duty at once made report, and one old fisherman who for more than half a century has kept watch on weather signs from the east cliff foretold in an emphatic manner the coming of a sudden storm. The approach of sunset was so very beautiful, so grand in its masses of splendidly coloured clouds, that there was quite an assemblage on the walk along the cliff in the old churchyard to enjoy the beauty. Before the sun dipped below the black mass of Kettleness, standing boldly athwart the western sky, its downward way was marked by myriad clouds of every sunset colour. Flame, purple, pink, green, violet, and all the tints of gold, with here and there masses not large but of seemingly absolute darkness in all sorts of shapes, as well outlined as colossal silhouettes. The experience was not lost on the painters, and doubtless some of the sketches of the prelude to the great storm will grace the RNA and RNI walls in May next. More than one captain made up his mind then, and there that his cobble or his mule, as they turned the different classes of boats, would remain in the harbour till the storm had passed. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and at midnight there was a dead calm, a sultry heat, and that prevailing intensity which, on the approach of thunder, affects persons of a sensitive nature. There were but few lights in sight at sea, for even the coasting steamers, which usually hug at the shore so closely, kept well to seaward, and but few fishing boats were in sight. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner with all sails set, which was seemingly going westwards. The foolhardiness or ignorance of her officers was a prolific theme for Comet while she remained in sight, and efforts were made to signal her to reduce sail in face of her danger. Before the night shut down, she was seen with sails idly flapping as she gently rolled on the undulating swells of the sea, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Shortly before ten o'clock, the stillness of the air grew quite oppressive, and the silence was so marked that the bleating of a sheep inland or the barking of a dog in the town was distinctly heard, and the band on the pier, with its lively French air, was like a discord in the great harmony of nature's silence. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, without warning, the tempest broke, with a rapidity which, at the time, seemed incredible, and even afterwards is impossible to realise. The whole aspect of nature at once became convulsed. The waves rose in growing fury, each overtopping its fellow, till in a very few minutes the lately glassy sea was like a roaring and devouring monster. White crested waves beat madly on the level sands and rushed up the shelving cliffs. Others broke over the piers, and with their spume swept the lanthorns on the lighthouses which rise from the end of either pier of Whitby Harbour. The wind roared like thunder and blew with such force that it was with difficulty that even strong men kept their feet or clung with grim clasp to the iron stanchions. It was found necessary to clear the entire piers from the mass of onlookers or else 
the fatalities of the night would have been increased manifold. To add to the difficulties and dangers of the time, masses of sea fog came drifting inland, white, wet clouds, which swept by in ghostly fashion, so dank and cold that it needed but little effort of imagination to think that the spirits of those lost at sea were touching their living brethren with the clammy hands of death, and many a one shuddered as the wreaths of sea mist swept by. At times the mist cleared, and the sea for some distance could be seen in the glare of the lightning, which now came thick and fast, followed by such sudden peals of thunder that the whole sky overhead seemed trembling under the shock of the footsteps of the storm. Some of the scenes thus revealed were of immeasurable grandeur and of absorbing interest. The sea, running mountains high, threw skyward with each wave mighty masses of white foam, which the tempest seemed to snatch at and whirl away into space. Here and there a fishing boat with a rag of a sail, running madly for shelter before the blast. Now and again the white wings of a storm-tossed seabird. On the summit of the east cliff, the new searchlight was ready for experiment, but it had not yet been tried. The officers in charge of it got it into working order, and in the pauses of the inrushing mist, swept with it the surface of the sea. Once or twice its surface was more effective, as when a fishing boat with gunwale underwater rushed into the harbour able, by the guidance of the sheltering light, to avoid the danger of dashing against the piers. As each boat achieved the safety of the port, there was a shout of joy from the mass of people on shore, a shout which for a moment seemed to cleave the gale and was then swept away in its rush. Before long, the searchlight discovered some distance away a schooner with all sails set, apparently the same vessel which had been noticed earlier in the evening. The wind had by this time backed to the east, and there was a shudder amongst the watchers on the cliff as they realized the terrible danger in which she now was. Between her and the port lay the great flat reef on which so many good ships have from time to time suffered, and with the wind blowing from its present quarter, it would be quite impossible that she should fetch the entrance of the harbour. It was now nearly the hour of high tide, but the waves were so great that in their troughs the shallow of the shore were almost visible, and the schooner, with all sails set, was rushing with such speed that, in the words of one old salt, she must fetch up somewhere if it was only in hell. Then came another rush of sea fog, greater than any hitherto, a mass of dank mist, which seemed to close on all things like a grey pall, and left available to men only the organ of hearing. For the roar of the tempest, and the crash of the thunder, and the booming of the mighty billows, came through the damp oblivion even louder than before. The rays of the searchlight were kept fixed on the harbour mouth across the east pier, where the shock was expected, and men waited, breathless. The wind suddenly shifted, to the northeast, and the remnant of the sea fog saw her, for lashed to the helm was a corpse with a drooping head, which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all. A great awe came on all as they realized that the ship, as if by a miracle, had found the harbor unsteered save by the hand of a dead man. However, all took place more quickly than it takes to write these words. The schooner paused not, 
but rushing across the harbour, pitched itself on that accumulation of sand and gravel washed by many tides and many storms. Into the southeast corner of the pier, jutting under the east cliff, known locally as Tate Hill Pier. There was, of course, a considerable concussion as the vessel drove up on the sand heap. Every spar, rope, and stay was strained, and some of the top hammer came crashing down. But, strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up upon the deck from below, as if shot up by the concussion, and running forward jumped from the bow onto the sand. Making straight for the steep cliff, with the churchyard hangs over the laneway to the east pier, so steeply that some of the flat tombstones, thrufsteins, or throughstones, as they call them in the Whitby vernacular, actually project over where the sustaining cliffs had fallen away. It disappeared into the darkness, which seemed intensified just beyond the focus of the searchlight. It so happened that there was no one at the moment on Tate Hill Pier, as all those whose houses are in close proximity were either in bed or were out on the heights above. Thus, the Coast Guard on duty on the eastern side of the harbour, who at once ran down to the little pier, was the first to climb on the board. The men working the searchlight, after scouring the entrance of the harbour without seeing anything, then turned the light on the derelict and kept it there. The Coast Guard ran aft, and then he came beside the wheel, bent over to examine it, and recoiled at once, as though under some sudden emotion. This seemed to pique general curiosity, and quite a number of people began to run. It is a good way around from the West Cliff by the drawbridge to Tate Hill Pier, but your correspondent is a fairly good runner and came well ahead of the crowd. When I arrived, however, I found already assembled on the pier a crowd whom the Coast Guard and police refused to allow to come on board. By the courtesy of the chief boatman, I was, as your correspondent, permitted to climb on deck and was one of a small group who saw the dead seamen whilst actually lashed to the wheel. It was no wonder that the Coast Guard was surprised or even awed, for not often can such a sight have been seen. The man was simply fastened by his hands, tied one over the other, to a spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wooden was a crucifix, the set of beads on which it was fastened being around both wrists and wheel, and all kept fast by the binding cords. The poor fellow may have been seated at one time, but the flapping and buffeting of the sails had worked through the rudder of the wheel and dragged him to and fro, so that the cords with which he was tied had cut the flesh to the bone. Accurate note was made of the state of things, and the doctor, Surgeon J. M. Caffian, of 33 East Elliot Place, who came immediately after me, declared after making examination, that the man must have been dead for quite two days. In his pocket was a bottle, carefully corked, empty save for a little roll of paper, which proved to be the addendum to the log. The Coast Guard said the man must have tied up his own hands, fastening the knot with his teeth. The fact that a Coast Guard was the first on board may save some complications later on, in the Admiralty Court for Coast Guards cannot claim the salvage which is the right of the first civilian entering on a derelict. Already, however, the legal tongues are wagging, and one young law student is loudly asserting that the right of the owner are already completely sacrificed, 
his property held in contravention of statutes of Mortmain, since the tiller as emblemship is not proof of delegated possession, is held in a dead hand. It is needless to say that the dead steerman has been reverently removed from the place where he held his honourable watch and ward till death, a steadfastness as noble as that of the young Casabianca, and placed in the mortuary to await inquest. Already the southern storm is passing, and its fierceness is abating. Crowds are scattering homeward, and the sky is beginning to redden over the Yorkshire walls. I shall send in time for your next issue. Further details of the derelict ship, which found her way so miraculously into harbour in the storm. 9th of August. The sequel to the strange arrival of the derelict in the storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is a Russian from Varna and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand, with only a small amount of cargo. A number of great wooden boxes filled with mould. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S. F. Billington of Seven, the Crescent, who this morning went aboard and formally took possession of the goods consigned to him. The Russian consul, too, acting for the Charity Parter, took formal possession of the ship and paid all harbour dues, etc. Nothing is talked about here today except the strange coincidence the officials of the Board of Trade have been most exacting in seeing that every compliance has been made with existing regulations. As the matter is to be a nine days wonder, they are evidently determined that there shall be no cause of after complaint. A good deal of interest was aboard concerning the dog which landed when the ship struck and more than a few of the members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitby, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found. It seems to have disappeared entirely from the town. It may be that it was frightened and made its way to the moors, where it is still hiding in terror. There are some who look with dread on such possibility, lest later on it should in itself become a danger, for it is evidently a fierce brute. Early this morning, a large dog, a half-breed mastiff belonging to a coal merchant close to Tate Hill Pier, was found dead in the roadway opposite to its master's yard. It had been fighting and manifestly had had a savage opponent, for its throat was torn away, and its belly was slit open as if with a savage claw. Later, by the kindness of the Board of Trade Inspector, I have been permitted to look over the logbook of the Demeter which was in order up to within three days, but contained nothing of special interest except as to the facts of missing men. The greatest interest, however, is with regard to the paper found in the bottle, which was today produced at the inquest, and a more strange narrative than the two between them unfold it has not been my lot to come across. As there is no motive for concealment, I am permitted to use them and accordingly send you a rescript, simply omitting technical details of seamanship and supercargo. It almost seemed as though the captain had been seized with some kind of mania before he got well into blue water, and that this had developed persistently throughout the voyage. Of course, my statement must be taken cum garano, since I am writing from the dictation of a clerk of the Russian consul, who kindly translated for me. Time being short. Written 18th July, 
things so strange happening that I shall keep accurate note henceforth till we land. On the 6th of July, we finished taking in cargo, silver sand and boxes of earth. At noon, set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, five hands, two mates, cook and myself, the captain. On the 11th of July, at dawn entered Bosphorus, boarded by Turkish custom officers, Bakshish, all correct, underway at 4pm. On 12th July, through Dardanelles, more custom officers, and flag boat of guarding squadron. Bakshish again. Work of officers thorough but quick. Want us off soon. At dark, passed into Archipelago. On 13th July, passed Cape Matapan. Crude dissatisfied about something, seemed scared but would not speak out. On 14th July was somewhat anxious about crew, men all steady fellows who sailed with me before. Mate could not make out what was wrong, they only told him there was something, and crossed themselves. Mate lost temper with one of them that day and struck him, expected fierce quarrel but all was quiet. On the 16th of July, mate reported in the morning that one of the crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Took larboard watch eight bells last night. Was relieved by Abramov, but did not go to bunk. Men more downcast than ever. All said they expected something of the kind, but would not say more than there was something aboard. Mate's getting very impatient with them. Feared some trouble ahead. On July 17th, Yesterday, one of the men, Old Garin, came to my cabin, and in an awestruck way confided to me that he thought there was a strange man aboard the ship. He said that in his watch he had been sheltering behind the deckhouse, as there was a rainstorm. When he saw a tall, thin man, who was not like any of the crew, come up to the companionway and go along the deck forward and disappear. He followed cautiously, but when he got to the bows found no one and the hatchways were all closed. He was in a panic of superstitious fear, and I am afraid the panic may spread. To allay it, I shall today search entire ship carefully from stem to stern. Later in the day, I got together the whole crew and told them, as they evidently thought there was someone in the ship, we would search from stem to stern. First mate angry, said it was folly, and to yield to such foolish ideas would demoralize the men said he would engage to keep them out of trouble with the handspike. I let him take the helm, whilst the rest began thorough search. All keeping abreast with lanterns, we left no corner unsearched, and there was only the big wooden boxes. There were no odd corners where a man could hide. Men much relieved when search was over, and went back to work cheerfully. First mate scowled, but said nothing. 20th July. Rough weather last three days. All hands busy with sails, no time to be frightened. Men seem to have forgotten their dread. Mate cheerful again, and all on good terms. Praised men for work in bad weather. Past Gibraltar, and out through straits. All well. 24th July. There seems some doom over this ship. Already a hand short and entering the Bay of Biscay, with wild weather ahead. And yet last night another man lost. Disappeared. Like the first, he came off his watch and was not seen again. Men all in panic of fear, sent around Robin, again, asking to have double watch, as they feared to be alone. Mate angry, fear there will be some trouble, as either he or the men will do some violence. 28th of July. Four days in hell, 
looking about in a sort of maelstrom and the wind a tempest. No sleep for anyone, men all worn out, hardly know how to set a watch, since no one fit to go on. Second mate volunteered to steer and watch, and let men snatch a few hours sleep. Wind abating, seas still terrific, but feel them less, as ship is steadier. 29th of July, another tragedy, had single watch tonight, as crew too tired to double. When morning watch came on deck, could find no one except steersman, raised outcry, and all came on deck. Thorough search, but no one found. Are now without second mate, and crew in a panic. Mate and I agreed to go amend heads forth and wait for any sign of cause. 30th July, last night, rejoiced we are nearing England. Weather's fine, all sails set, retired, worn out, slept soundly. Awakened by mate telling me that both men of watch and steermen, missing. Only self and mate and two hand left to work the ship. 1st of August. Two days of fog, and not a sail sighted. Had hoped when in the English Channel to be able to signal for help or get in somewhere. Not having power to work sails, having to run before wind, dare not lower as could not raise them again. We seem to be drifting to some terrible doom. Mate now more demoralized than either of men. His stronger nature seems to have worked inwardly against himself. Working stolidly and patiently, with minds made up to worst. They are Russian. He, Romanian. 2nd August midnight. Woke up from few minutes sleep by hearing a cry, seemingly outside my port. Could see nothing in fog, rushed on deck and ran against mate. Tells me heard cry and ran, but no sign of man on watch. One more gone. Lord, help us! Mate says we must be past Straits of Dover, as in a moment of fog lifting he saw North Foreland. Just as he heard the man cry out. If so, we are now off the North Sea, and only God can guide us in the fog, which seems to move with us, and God seems to have deserted us completely. 3rd of August at midnight, I went to relieve the man at the wheel, and when I got to it, found no one there. The wind was steady, and as we ran before it, there was no yawning. I dared not leave it, so shouted for the mate. After a few seconds, he rushed up on deck in his flannels. He looked wild-eyed and haggard, and I greatly fear his reason has given way. He came close to me and whispered hoarsely, with his mouth to my ear, as though fearing the very air might hear. It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night I saw it, like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bows, and looking out, I crept behind it and gave it my knife. But the knife went through it, empty as the air. And as he spoke, he took his knife and drove it savagely into space. Then he went on. But it is here, and I'll find it. And it is in the hold, perhaps in one of these boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. You work with the helm. And with a warning look and his finger on his lips, he went below. There was springing up a choppy wind, and I could not leave the helm. I saw him come out on deck again with a tool chest and lantern, and go down the forward hatchway. He is mad. Stark, raving, mad. And it's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes, they are invoiced as clay. 
and to pull them about is as harmless a thing as he can do. So here I stay, and mind the helm, and write these notes. I can only trust in God and wait till the fog clears. Then, if I can steer to any harbour with the wind that is, I shall cut down sails and lie by, and signal for help. It's nearly all over now, just as I was beginning to hope that the mate would come out calmer, for I heard him knocking away at something in the hold, and work is good for him. There came up the hatchway a sudden startled scream, which made my blood run cold, and up on the deck he came as if shot from a gun, a raging madman, with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with fear. Save me, he cried, and then looked around on the blanket of fog. His horror turned to despair, and in a steady voice he said, You had better come too, Captain, before it's too late. He is there. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him, and there's all that is left. Before I could say a word, or move forward to seize him, he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. I suppose I know the secret too now. It was this madman who had got rid of the men one by one, and now he has followed them himself. God help me! How am I to account for all these horrors when I get to port? When I get to port, will that ever be? 4th of August. Still fog, which the sunrise cannot pierce. I know there is a sunrise because I am a sailor. Why else I know not. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed. And in the dimness of the night I saw it. Him. God, forgive me. But the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a man. To die like a sailor in blue water. No man can object. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. But I shall baffle this fiend, or monster. For I shall tie in my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail. And along with them, I shall tie that which he, it, dare not touch. And then come good wind or foul, I shall save my soul and my honor as a captain. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. If you can look at me in the face again, I may not have time to act. If we are wrecked, mayhap, this bottle may be found, and those who find it may understand. If not, well, then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God and the Blessed Virgin and the saints help a poor, ignorant soul, trying to do his duty. Of course, the verdict was open to one. There is no evidence to abduce, and whether or not the man himself committed the murders, there is now none to say. The folks here hold almost universally that the captain is simply a hero, and he is to be given a public funeral. Already it is arranged that his body is to be taken with a train of boats up the Esk for a piece, and then brought back to Tate Hill Pier and up the Abbey Steps, for he is to be buried in the churchyard on the cliff. The owners of more than a hundred boats have already given in their names as wishing to follow him to the grave. No trace has ever been found of the great dog. At which there is much mourning, for with public opinion in its present state, he would, I believe, be adopted by the town. Tomorrow we'll see the funeral, and so we'll end this one more mystery of the sea. And this concludes this chapter. 
for today's episode. Well, mates, today's episode was really interesting to me because I've watched many old Hammer horror films and remakes of Dracula with different focuses on aspects from the novel. It's really cool to actually know how Dracula arrived in Whitby, what surrounded him upon his arrival that terrified the small town. This sort of thing is often overlooked or completely skipped in film media when it comes to Dracula. The mist rolling in, the thunder on the waves that picked up around the Russian schooner that delivered this devilish cargo was a nice touch. Something that really adds to the character of what makes Dracula who he is. And what's more, the fact that the captain's hands were worn to the bone, tied to the wheel of the ship, teetering back and forth as the waves crash. Goodness, the imagery in that scene of a bone-exposed corpse with torn flesh at the wrists and the insanity brought on by simply seeing Dracula all add to the intense power that this monstrous humanoid possesses. Insanity wasn't an aspect of Dracula that I feel is heavily focused on in any of the Dracula renditions. It's always been physical prowess, at least in my viewing of many Dracula tales in film. And that could be because it's easier to pull off a physical stunt than to instill the feeling of insanity or fear in the audience. I can't remember him driving people to jump off ships, attack each other, or just in general behave aggressively. But I did get the understanding that Dracula had the power of mind control, and that this is just another aspect of this power. Sometimes I can't tell whether Dracula plays with his food, or his control over reality relies on the weak will of others around him. Sort of like It, where the more scared of him you are, the more power he is given. The more you realize your death is imminent, the more sealed your fate is. Dracula's power seems almost limitless at this stage, but it's clear that large groups can or could still get the better of him, just from his behavior alone. And the fact that he leaped off the boat and into the hills as a giant hound is an example of his reliance on illusion, shapeshifting, and subterfuge. I think what I really love about Dracula is that Despite possessing a lot of this kind of power, Dracula is consistent in the way he operates the use of that power, and seems to rely on distraction above all else. The storms and lightning, hiding in the mist, using agility to run into the hills with bursts of strength at his fingertips for use when he absolutely needs it. He's a really interesting sort of villain slash monster. What an amazingly well-crafted and balanced creature, and the more I read, the more I realize how grounded and authentic this monster is. So far, he hasn't behaved unusually or brought out hidden powers that are too different from when we first are introduced to him. Dracula also carries with him such an unpredictability in his actions. You just never know what crazy power he'll use next, and in what way. So I can see why he was so popular back then, and even now. Before I close today, I want to thank the Patreons that keep this podcast growing. My Ode Night Tea Titans, Maya, mate, thank you so much for your support. I've recently been able to up my music skills thanks to your patronage, and I will be working on custom music to support this show as well. Only possible through your support. Thank you so much. And my White Tea Warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer. Both of you are so fantastic. I've been working closely with Epidemic Sounds, so that I can bring even more special effects and music to this podcast. Thank you so much, mates. And of course, my ill-grained forces. Chad Warren, Joss Heather, 
Paige Marchini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, Dolphin and Cow, and Michelangelo Giacone. Thank you, little lovelies, for being so damn awesome and popping this podcast with support that's helped me pay for licenses and access to new software. Absolute legends, all of you. If you want to support the show, swing on by my Patreon page, www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash S-F-G-T. And aside from shoutouts, there are loads more benefits on offer. The great thing is I work closely with those that support the show. And every now and then I reach out to those that support and get feedback on what they would like as rewards. So what you see in the tiers is just stock standard. I tend to go above and beyond and make the rewards personal. So what you see there isn't just what you get. And I do all I can to ensure that as you support me, you get something special back in return. So thank all of you supporters out there that supercharge this show. You mean the world to me. So folks, have a fantastic Friday and kick butt weekend. And as always, till next we meet.